Today in the studio, we have Amin Martz and Dave Mayer talking about Linux-based backup, as well as Rick Kilpack talking about IDM 3.5, next on Novell Open Audio. Welcome to Novell Open Audio, the podcast that connects the Novell user community with what's going on inside and around the Novell universe. I'm your host, Aaron Quill. And you're David Mayer. I am? You are. Hey, I'm David Mayer. <laughs> so, Dave, today in the studio, first, it was actually pretty cool for me, had a chance to sit down with you and Amin Martz and talk a little bit about Linux Backup. I've worked with Amin before, and uh, we spoke at length before his BrainShare session, and I had really great experience with him. We both learned a lot together about backup. I took advantage of his knowledge of uh, the, the strategic elements of it, and he took advantage of my knowledge of the technical aspects of it. Yeah, and it was great to sit down and chat with you guys and get up to speed on backup, because, I mean, honestly, I just haven't touched the stuff in probably a decade. Because it's such an important business function and way undervalued. Yeah, so let's go ahead and roll the interview. Today in the studio, we've got Amin Martz. He's an applied technology strategist here at Novell. And we also have Dave Mayer in the studio with me. And today, we're going to talk about Linux backup. Now, guys, i got to be honest with you. Since I've been with Novell for 11 years, I haven't done any real work at customer sites forever. And I can't tell you the last time I actually played with a backup solution. So I'm hoping that just the two of you guys can do a brain dump to me and bring me up to speed with what's happening in backup on Linux. Sound cool? Sounds great. It's good to be here, Aaron. I think the place to start would be to say that the general principles of backup are uh, ubiquitous. There's the principle of archiving your uh, critical business data. doesn't change when you move from one platform to another. The methods might, but the overall principle is very much consistent across platforms. The solutions that are available for Linux, some of them are solutions that uh, were also available for NetWare. And uh, that's something that it means it, a lot of involvement in. And, you know, I completely agree with that. You know, I mean, a lot of times people sit back and they say, well, you know, what are the caveats of backing up Linux or backing up Unix or backing up Windows? And, and it comes down to what David mentioned earlier, where, you know, for the most part, the process is the same. You know, and it comes down a lot to, you know, who in the ecosystem do you want to use? Do you want to use a backup vendor that you've used in the past? Do you want to use specific agents? Are there specific things that you're trying to back up, such as databases or do you have to worry about open files and so on and so forth? But outside of that, the process is incredibly easy and non-unique across platforms. Are most backup solutions at this point cross-platform where you just have, you know, a centralized backup server of some sort, and then you have agents that might run on Linux, might run on your network servers, your Windows servers and such? Realistically, if you're looking at, like, your Tier 1 providers, and I'm talking about your Semantics and your Commvaults, those guys, realistically, they're going to be able to back up Linux. And a lot of the differentiation comes between backing up a Linux file system and backing up NSS volumes, which at that point, I'm going to probably hand over the conversation to Dave. But that's where you get the large differentiation between being able to back up any distribution of Linux and being able to back up our distribution of Linux with NSS volumes. That issue is simply that the metadata that's available, the structure in POSIX-style file systems, the typical ones that you have with Linux, is 
not as complex as the structure in NSS file systems and POSIX-based backup applications uh, aren't capable of retrieving all of the structured metadata for NSS file systems. So what you're referring to is when I look at a normal Linux file system, I normally have real basic rights, or at least basic what I would say coming from a background of netware, where you know, you've got typically like read, write, execute yes. type rights, as opposed to with NSS today, I think, do we still have like 11 different attributes that you can assign to a file? It's something like that, but it's not really bound in the way that POSIX access control restrictions are. There's one user, one group, and the rest of the world. On file systems like NSS, there can be one user, another user, another user, another user, ad nauseum, and the same for groups. And all of them can have uniquely independent rights. There are inherited rights, in which case to actually have them backed up, you have to back up the place from where they inherit and not the place at which they're inherited. So there's a a huge amount of complexity in backing up file systems like NSS. That means that they do need dedicated backup agents and applications. And for that reason... The NetWare backup components were ported to Linux. They support POSIX and NetWare NSS uh, attribute semantics, but those were ported to make it possible to back up all your metadata on Linux. Are you specifically referring to, like, the TSA agents? That's correct. The, all of the SMS storage management services components were ported. That's the communications element that uh, provides the interfaces for backup applications and the agent that provides access to the file system to back it up. Okay. How about actual vendors that we've got that support backing up NSS volumes on Linux? Well, from that point, I mean, you're looking at a few, and you know, and the, and the list is long, and one of the greatest places to, to go and view this list, and it's a dynamic list, so what I tell you today is not going to be the fully featured list, but if you go to novell.com, forward slash products, forward slash open enterprise server, forward slash partners, underscore communities, dot HTML. You know, if you look in that location, what you're going to find is you're going to find, you know, Sinksort, who has been with us an incredibly long time, Symantec, Commvault, and a lot of vendors in that direction. You also find vendors that support antivirus or protection in that direction as well. Those are the tier ones. And you also have to look at it, too, from the perspective of, you know, what are you backing up to? You know, what's your backup target? Is your backup target going to be tape? Is your backup target going to be another disk? Are you doing disk to disk to tape? You know, and what are you trying to accomplish or prevent? You know, do you need a backup? Do you need an archive? These are some of the questions that go a little bit deeper than just saying, hey, well, I need to align myself with a vendor that can just back up my file system. What are you trying to protect yourself against is some of that conversation. Okay, so whether it's like you're looking at just users deleting files and having to go back and restore older versions or disaster recovery or you lose a whole building, you got to make a choice of your backup software based on what you're trying to recover from, right? Right, or if you have e-discovery components that you want to protect yourself against or if you're looking at certain compliances that you also want to protect yourself against. What's uh, e-discovery? E-discovery, to a certain degree, is basically an attorney coming in saying, look, you know, I need to have all the data from an email perspective listed use, for example. I need to have all the data, all the conversations between this point and this point, you know, point X and point Y between persons A and persons C. A backup in and of itself is not going to capture that data. And more importantly, a backup in and of itself is not searchable in that context. That is why an archive is incredibly important. But realistically, you can't rely on an archive to rebuild a particular server or a email database. Let's differentiate there. What's the difference between a backup and an archive? Simply put, 
a, a backup is, is a collection of non-contiguous data stored for the tactical purpose of supporting the physical infrastructure, supporting your data center. So that's we basically rebuild your environment after a tragedy. Absolutely. A, a server crashed and you bring it back. Okay. An archive is a collection of searchable data stored whose retention is aligned with a strategic business goal. Let's remove it from the e-discovery perspective and think of it from a perspective of um, data mining. You know, an archive, that's where you would potentially use that feature. Oh, okay. Cool. What you can see from all of these concepts is that backup isn't really something that you deploy on a host-by-host basis. Backup really is a strategic thing. It's something that depends on planning. It's something that depends on policy. But it's very much something that needs to have a, a formal place in an organization for many reasons. Personally, my big interest in it is the technical ones because serial access tape is a particularly poor medium for very large backup jobs simply because serial access means that it's, it's particularly slow and it's also very vulnerable to inability to synchronize with the tape itself. For that reason, you'll find that a lot of archive solutions involve disks. But as an individual administrator, you can put together ad hoc disk archive or backup strategies as needed with things like rsync that are already uh, widely available. But that doesn't really give you a strategic backup solution. But those give you some ideas of places where even an individual administrator working within a complete backup strategy can provide use archive and backup technologies to provide some advantage to individual users. I've got to admit, I love rsync. How is it happening now with, I mean, we're just talking about an incredible amount of data that companies have to back up. I mean, how do they find time to do this? What are they doing like parallel streams to tape when they go to tape now instead of just doing it straight serially? Or how are the hardware vendors handling this? Well, there are a number of different ways, and I think that the best way to describe it is, you know, it's a melding of a number of methodologies where, for example, you know, you might be using our new technology to streamline your backup, which is our DST technology that's bound with Open Enterprise Server 2, dynamic storage technology. You might be using that in concert with HSM technology, and then likewise, too, you know, you can also use data deduplication processes. So now in the example you just gave with emailing a document to 35 different people, what does the system do when it goes to back up individual people's machines? It can look and say that Word document's actually exactly binary identical to these other 35? That's a place where I think the backup would be done in a strategic location at the mail server, for example, where, in fact, mail technologies like GroupWise already deal with that by keeping one copy Right. of and a then message they just like that. To it so, when you, yes, uh, so when you archive, for example, a group-wise server, you don't archive, archive 35 individual instances of one message that was sent identically to 35 people. You archive one instance only. That's the kind of place you solve those problems. If you do have a document, let's just consider 100 user directories. If you do old-style backup, full backup, every week you do a complete archive of the entire environment, and then each day you do incremental updates. But if you look at an incremental update, old style, it would just look at the maybe the file size, but certainly the uh, last modified date and time, and whether or not there are any change, actual changes to the data in the file, it will go ahead and make another copy onto the archive. Companies like Tivoli many years ago looked at strategies of doing continuous incremental backup. 
doing one full backup once and thereafter always doing incremental backup. And for that, they were looking against all the metadata. But if you look at technologies like rsync, what they're doing is looking inside the file. And rsync's just the one I'm most familiar with. There are other technologies that do the same thing. You look inside the file, you check to see where it's changed, and then you transfer only those places that have changed. So now incremental becomes sub-file granularity, it becomes blocks within a file granularity. So you're actually not opening up the file and looking at the metadata actually inside the file, like if it's a Word document, you're not actually opening up and looking at the Word document, you're instead just looking at the bits on disk. That's correct. Oh, very cool. And you're just saying, you know, this amount of bits in this file change, so when you copy it off, just copy those couple bits. Yeah, and there are other technologies even that uh, know about the document formats themselves and go to an even finer granularity because a strategy that just looks at a binary image of the file and says, okay, what's changed, has to decide what granularity to use, and typically it's uh, some block size. Sure. Somewhat arbitrary in size. If you have uh, knowledge of the structure of the document, then you can go in and say, okay, the document tree looks like this, where did it change? And transfer only the changes in the internal structure of the document rather than the block containing those changes. Those tend to be very closely tied to individual applications, such as uh, office applications. Sure. And that's probably where people are seeing uh, the bulk of their user-based files anyway. That is correct. And I think that those kind of strategies are the only ones that are effective for the types of storage that you mentioned earlier. If you're talking about, uh, for $100, I can go out and buy a terabyte of disk. A terabyte of disk is impractical to back up in its entirety uh, to anything other than another disk, in my opinion. Uh, so for that reason, any backup strategy has got to be based on doing as much as possible in the minimum time. And for that, you look for short circuits. And a great short circuit is not to consider the file system as a whole, not to consider the identity of something that has changed just in terms of what the file system has stored in its structure, in its metadata, but instead going right down to the smallest set of bytes that you can transfer to retain consistency. And for that, you're looking at block identity, the, the rsync style backups that I mentioned. And one of the things that, that David touched on that I wanted to bring a point back to is that he mentioned minimum time. And I think that you can take that one step further and say, you know, you need to back up a minimum time with the lowest impact to the user. And that, in turn, talks to one of the first reasons or one of the first first catalysts for what was the evolution of a storage area network or a SAN. So what about restores? I mean, I, I remember back when I actually did real work, uh, to do a restore, you had to restore the full OS, you normally patch the OS, and then you put the backup software back on that box and then restored it either from tape or from a centralized backup server. Is that still the way that things go, or are people now able to do more like a bare metal restore? They can do a bare metal restore. It comes down a lot. You know, what are you, you know, what's your target? What are you trying to restore? Are you trying to restore single files in a, in a granular sense? Are you trying to restore a operating system? You know, that that is what really begs the question in, to a certain degree, of how you back something up and what agents you might particularly use or not use, depending upon the backup vendor that you choose. And if you consider it in terms of tasks, an administrator has multiple responsibilities in terms of archive and backup, and it means mentioned uh, several of them. The uh, rebuilding hosts, 
that's something that requires a big infrastructure, serious backline storage, tape, the like, uh, possibly even original media uh, CDs to rebuild the host and then recover the original configuration of the host. But one of the biggest, one of the most common uh, things that administrators see is going to be single file restore. Someone calls up the help desk and says, I deleted my file. A place where you can give a lot of power to an administrator is to take that responsibility, that restore responsibility out of their hands because it's an enormous waste of time. There are many technologies, NSS has one, for example, in uh, Netware, where the file system can automatically keep archives of individual files over time. And the client technologies via, for example, NCP and uh, a client plugin give you a way to look at a place in the file system, in the network file system, and say, okay, as myself, this user, what can I recover that I have deleted or damaged in this directory? You'll see a list of the files in that directory that have been modified and multiple versions. Select the one that uh, you accidentally deleted and get on with your life. And now you've got a, a situation where an administrator has deployed a technology that puts the power for restore into the hands of end users. And it preserves all of their existing access controls. So the access that they had to the file before they deleted it is the same in the archive. Oh, cool. So I can only recover things that I originally could have accessed in the first place. Now, you mentioned NCP there, you mentioned NSS. Is that stuff that's just built in inherently in OAS? It's built into NSS. The archive server technology in Novell Storage Services is in OES, and the client piece is a Windows shell extension. So you run it on your Windows client. You go right-click on the directories, and you see the files that were there. There's another standalone client that you can use as well. Uh, Linux support? Yes. Oh, excellent. But it's very much like, if I'm on Linux, kind of like a Nautilus view. Yes. Or if I'm on Windows, it's like an Explorer view. So That's that right. It, it's almost like native file access. That's the perfect situation to have when you're putting Restore in the hands of end users. All you do is you tell them there's a different place where you go to recover your files, but it looks the same. Oh, that's cool. I didn't even know we had this technology. Is it something administrators need to turn on? Yes. Or, okay, and how do they do that? Any idea? It's documented uh, in the OES documentation. Okay, uh, so uh, RTFM. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's in the storage services uh, parts of the uh, OES documentation. Okay, very cool. And for the layperson, it is commonly referred to as the salvage and purge feature. Ah, okay. It's gone beyond what salvage and purge was in terms of network versions up to at least six. Salvage and purge gave you the last version of a file, but the archive services technology is uh, much more. You can have multiple versions of the same file, but it is accessed with the same methods internally as purge. Okay. So if, if I kind of want to summarize what I've learned today, probably the biggest things are there's a variety of different things I need to look at, right? I've got backup, which is more disaster recovery, be able to bring a server or a workstation back from the grave after it's died or been replaced. And then I've got archive, which is much more of storing documents for legal reasons or for something that I'm going to want to go back and search for later to 
keep multiple versions of files as well as, you know, maybe files that I've deleted from time to time or emails that get deleted, right? That's absolutely correct. And a couple of things that you also want to think about when you're designing, you know, when you think about backup and recovering and thinking about archiving is you want to make sure that your backup administrator and your storage administrator are in sync because you don't want to have your storage administrator go out and throw up a boatload of storage and your backup administrator has no idea that he's not responsible for backing up a new X amount, an X percentage of storage. And likewise, you also want to have your backup person very, you have that backup person have a conversation with your compliance officer. And you want him to understand what is it that, what compliances are you bound by? Because these are conversations that sometimes these, these organizations don't work in concert and then go out and spend a lot of money on solutions that are not aligned with the business problem. And you can think of the cost, for example, if uh, you're non-compliant with legal requirements. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, so if, if you don't have your organization's uh, interested parties involved in the discussion of archive and backup, then you risk a great deal, not just the loss of your own business data, but the loss of the ability to defend yourself potentially. There's a lot of other things that are interesting about backup, and, and as I say, I've been involved in the uh, the lower levels of it for many years. Amin and I have uh, talked about it many times as well. Some of the things I'd like to just bring up and mention are some of the classic problems. Someone once asked me at a conference, why hasn't Novell produced a document giving a best practice for disaster recovery? My instinct was very quickly to think, you know what, in a real disaster, people aren't going to come to work. People aren't going to care. They're going to be worrying about where food and drink are coming from. That's certainly true, but it doesn't mean that a, a disaster recovery plan is not uh, creatable. But I think that's one where you have to do it. I can't tell you. There isn't an, a standard way to do something like that, but a disaster recovery plan is an important thing for a business to have. Also, the most classic problem, I think, in any part of backup is performance. I mean, and I have talked about this so many times, and that is uh, the classic example is big file versus small file. Big file backup performance is great. Small file backup performance is typically poor. I'd really like to explain what that as simply as I can because the question comes up so many times. Please. And the reality is that it's not really that complicated. Most file systems give you access to their files using uh, a, a standard set of operations. You find the file in the file system. You open the file, which gives you a handle from which you can receive data. You read the file, and then when you're finished, you return the handle back to the file system by closing the file. So you've got these four operations, scan, open, read, and close. The only useful part for backup is read. None of the rest of it's relevant to backup. Backup is just read the data and archive it. Sure. So these extra operations are necessary but unhelpful overhead. If we consider a file system where they take a fixed time, let's say they take a second. Ludicrous example, but let's just say they do. So you've got one second for scanning the file system to find the file, one second to open it, and one second to close it. If the read took one second, then one quarter of the time was doing useful functionality, and the rest was spent doing overhead that provides no benefit in performance terms that's the case for a small file imagine a big file where we do to make the numbers easy let's say three reads now what we have is one second scan one second close one second open and three seconds of read now we've got three seconds out of six right that is useful 
functionality. For that case, we've now got 50% of our time instead of 25% of our time spent doing something worthwhile. And that scales logarithmically, ultimately, but uh, that, that scales. If you can get backups of big files and you do a lot more reads, you spend a lot more time doing reads than scan, open, and close. If you're doing small files, the percentage of time spent doing scan, open, and close is much higher. It's a necessary evil, and there isn't an easy way to solve it. The best way to deal with it, in my view, is to look to make the absolute performance of your backup not be something that impedes you, and many of the technologies and strategies we've discussed do that. For example, archive services. Um, You don't have to worry too much about having an up-to-date backup because you have separate storage that has an archive of the current file system. Block uh, mirroring, where you have storage area network systems that do their own block mirrors to uh, another storage area network. For a case like that, you don't back up the primary, you back up the secondary, and now your backup window is all night. Right. Uh, You can take 50 hours to do a backup because you don't really care. Yeah, you're not affecting users because they're still hitting the primary box. That's correct. Any strategy that looks to do that, though, um, to do synchronization to a secondary storage near-line storage or hierarchical storage, and then do a formal backup archive from that secondary storage is a great strategy for getting yourself out of this uh, performance penalty that happens with small files and with large numbers of files and with huge file systems. What about backing up open files? Has that gotten a lot better? In terms of backing up open files, I think that Dave could speak a little bit better on that standpoint than I can. The thing about backing up open files is that... uh, There are environments where a single file isn't the entire state of, let's call it a document, that you're trying to back up. The classic example is uh, very old 3GL uh, databases where you would typically have uh, a database file and an index file that were related. The index file contains the index data for the database. If you try to back up the database but not the index file, then you're left with a partial copy of the document where the document is the complete database environment. Now, if you consider applications, an application isn't responsible to a backup uh, environment. So an application isn't required to synchronize its data to actual disk files in any manner that would keep them consistent for the purposes of restore. So a backup application that does open file backup may backup that crude example of a database and an index in a state where the database application had flushed the database, but not the index, sure. or vice versa. You never know what the state of the exactly. files are. Yeah, yeah and th- that's uh, that's a whole um, that's a whole computer science specialty, I believe. Sure. The there are strategies built into file systems now to permit a backup application to cause the file system to announce that it's about to make a snapshot, and the applications respond to that announcement by flushing all of their buffers, waiting until the snapshot has been made and then continuing to do their disk writes after that. That's not widely supported in applications. So open file backup is something that you really have to be very careful with. I would say that if you have online transaction-based systems, you probably don't want to do open file backup. You want to go look for a solution integrated into your transactioning system, for example, databases like Oracle uh, and others. If you have Office documents, Uh, your environment is primarily office documents, then it's very likely that the 
documents will be saved and closed once in a while, in which case an archive, versioning archive technology like, like the archive server in NSS is probably good enough, and you can just un- run live open file backups in whatever state the files are in. And outside of that, I'd suggest that you look very closely at the way your data is being used, the applications and how they access the data and make very careful decisions because open file backup can leave you with a corrupt environment when you do a restore if you're not very careful to understand what you're going to get out of it. On the other hand, it should be said that any open file backup is a backup of the file in the state it would be in if the server had crashed at the moment the backup was taken. That's a little hard to get to grips with, but it's basically like you flick flip the switch to disconnect the storage at the point where you took the snapshot and that's the way it looks it would look the same way if the server had just crashed and you were rebooting it the thing about that is that any applications that are incapable of handling a failure like that are probably applications that you need to replace anyway any application should be able to recover its functionality from data in the state it was at when the server failed. So give some serious consideration to that. If you're finding that if you do snapshots and restore them and they're not looking good, your application's misbehaving, it's probably time to replace that that application. Okay, cool. Uh, Amin, anything you want to close with? Nothing. I, I, you know, I think we've, we've captured a lot of information here, and I think I don't think it was an overwhelming sense. And hopefully, everyone listening to this has already started to apply some of their backup and recovery um, perspective and procedures into their current environment. If you haven't, then I assume this is a good place to start. But likewise, you know, it's one of those things where there are advancements every day in this world, and one of the great things about it is that backup and recovery no longer sits in the silo way to the left. You know, it's more to, it's more aligned in the middle with business process. And that's great because that means it's aligned with other technologies. You know, aligned with technologies such as DST. It's aligned with other technologies such as you know, hierarchical storage management. And the backup vendors know and understand this. So being able to define, create, and spec an appropriate backup solution is incredibly easy or easier today than it was a number of years ago when people balked at the idea of having a couple hundred terabytes to back up. All right, Amin Martz, technology strategist with Novell, thanks a lot for taking some time to speak with us. Thanks a lot for having me. Uh, Dave, did you notice at the end of the interview I kind of forgot to thank you? I expect nothing more. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> so what do we have up next? Well, now we've got Identity Manager version 3.5, and we're talking to Rick Kilpack. So I wasn't here for that recording. Neither uh, was I. Oh, so <laughs> neither of us really know what's going to be covered in it, huh? It's going to be a fun one. We'll oh. both learn from this. You know what? Let's just hit play. Hi, I'm Caitlin, and I'm in the studio with Randy, and today we're going to be talking with Rick Kilpack, who is a senior product manager, about Identity Manager 3.5. Before we jump into the nitty-gritties of the updates in Identity Manager 3.5, why don't we get a base-level view of what Identity Manager accomplishes for our customers? When you think about Identity Manager, most of our customers relate that to our original technology, which was DrexML. 
DrexML gave us the ability to connect the data from dis disparate systems into an identity vault or a meta directory. From there, you could apply central policies, you could have centralized management, and you could control your entire environment from a centralized repository. That's still a very powerful feature of Identity Manager, but Identity Manager 3 has brought quite a bit more to the table. It brings you a lot of provisioning capabilities where you can actually trigger workflows and you can trigger different types of provisioning activities that will allow the administrator to map their business processes to that identity infrastructure. We also provide a user application. The user application gives you a face, if you will, to the identity vault so that a user can come in through a web top and they can get access to the white pages. They can see everyone in the corporate directory and they can look at different types of views depending on what their function is or what their job is. They can actually manage some of their own information. Maybe their address changes and they want to manage that or their description. We also have included you know, full password management capabilities so that they can reset their own password or they can get password hints and, and the full challenge response. So Identity Manager is more than just synchronizing systems together, although that's a core piece. It's also about provisioning and bringing that identity data to the front, to the end user, to the managers. Okay. Provisioning then reminds me of the current corporate buzzword of governance. What is governance? You know, role-based management. What is that, and how does IDM fit into that space? Yeah, there's a lot of buzz in the corporate world with analysts and with different people about what is government. And you're right, there's a mapping of governance to role-based services. You know, our back. Role-based services is a key part of governance. Governance means that I have the ability to map my existing business processes to an identity infrastructure, to a technical aspect. So an example of that would be that I have a new employee come in and the HR person will need to add that new employee. Well, with governance and with Identity Manager 3, especially 3.5, I have the ability to trigger workflow that when a user is created in an HR system, just like with DrexML, I can synchronize that user into the identity vault. That may trigger several mechanisms that will provision an email account and may provision some applications that they may need, but it will also allow us to trigger workflows that will map to a business process. For instance, they may need a cell phone and the manager may need to approve that they can get that cell phone. Well, in today's world, a lot of businesses would say, well, send me an email and we'll see what we can do or call the IT desk or call the purchasing people and go ahead and order or go out to the store and go buy one and then send in an expense report and we'll approve it. And it's all manual operation. With this now, I can govern or I can control who has access and what they have access to. So when that HR person adds that user, synchronizes to the Identity Vault, through the Identity Vault, I can trigger and say, oh, there's a new user, and they have these attributes on them. Maybe that is that they are in the financial group. Well, all of my financial folks need these licenses to these financial applications, and they need a laptop, and they need these things. But wait a minute. We may have a situation where some of them may need access to those, but others based on their job function, they're new, they're being trained, we don't need to burn up a license, we don't need to give them a laptop. So those could be exception-based, where those come through a workflow process to the manager where they can approve and say, go ahead and do that. 
From there, the system can provision and send out those REC requests where it can actually provision the applications or send the license or the URL and can trigger that. So governance is about taking technical aspects of the system, which we're all used to, bringing that up to a line of business manager or to management and allowing that to map to business processes. Role is a key part of that in defining what types of things you want to see. We recently did a podcast with Babar Amin with regards to identity assurance. Where does IDM fit into the identity assurance suite? Identity insurance is an interesting solution that, that solves an interesting business process or business problem. Identity assurance is driven not exclusively from government-mandated compliance initiatives, but it certainly has a stronghold in there. For instance, with the Homeland Security Initiative, HSPD-12, there is a standard in there on how to issue cards. So a card, as was probably explained to you before, is very, very important that I have access to different types of buildings regardless of which department I'm in. Well, there's a standard called FIPS 201, which is the Federal Information Processing Standards. FIPS 201 is part of that 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 defines the business process of issuing a card. There are certain approvals that have to occur before an employee or a contractor gets a card. So identity manager is a key part of that because as that user is added and a card is requested, that needs to be provisioned and different types of approvals have to be sent to different people. And that's all automated in that system so that everything can be tracked and audited and you can truly fit and claim your FIPS 201 certified. So that's a a key foundation piece of that. It sounds like IDM really is kind of the backbone of the identity assurance suite. Absolutely. That's exactly right. So you just mentioned about auditing there, Rick. If you use Identity Manager, can it tie into something um, like the Sentinel suite, or how would that work? Yeah, absolutely. So most of you are familiar that Identity Manager and the Identity Vault, the meta directory, has a full event system. So we can tell when changes are made, who logs in, what logs in, you know, what provisioning has happened, what the drivers have done. We can do all that with our event system. That event system, as you know, has hooked into our Novell audit agent, and you can audit through there. Also, in the same way, Sentinel can collect those same events, and so you can not only audit, but you can monitor and, and take capability of all the correlation and Sentinel activities that happen in Identity Manager. So it's more than just auditing. It's monitoring, reporting, and data correlation that's all hooked in as well. So, Rick, Designer 2.0 came out with IDM 3.0. What changes have been made in that? Can you tell us anything about that? Yeah, let me talk a little bit about Designer. So most of you are probably familiar with Designer. It's received a lot of splash. In fact, we've it's been a huge contributor to a lot of technical shootouts and awards that we've received in the industry. Frankly, there's no one out there that can compete against what we provide. Designer gives you several different views. It gives you an architectural view. It gives you a designer view. It gives you a high-level view that allows you to look at your entire system, not only look but configure your system. So through a GUI, it's all Eclipse-based, um, but through a GUI, you... When you say Eclipse-based, what, what platforms can we run that on? Uh, Eclipse-based, will, it'll run on Windows as well as Linux. So you run this tool. The tool utilizes just standard IDM drivers, and we can connect to different systems, and you can actually click and drag the different types of drivers into your system and can auto-configure your policies in your um, through wizard-based, or depending on the view that you're in, you can go down into the raw 
XML data as well. So depending on who you are, what you are, you can look at the data, configure the data, and manage the data with Designer. The key feature in Designer, though, is that after you've done all of that, there's a documentation feature. Within minutes, you can have hundreds of pages of documents that tells you exactly what your system is and how it works. That's not only used for compliance initiatives, but as you're a consultant going out in the field and designing this thing, you immediately have the documentation that is needed for that customer, and you have a record of what's going on. Yeah, so, I, I saw that at BrainShare. I was super impressed with that. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty cool. Like I say, depending on your technical knowledge, you can get a lot out of it because there's lots of different views and different things that you want to look at with Designer. So Designer 2.0 was introduced and, and allowed you to configure the identity vault. It allowed you to connect systems and to write policies to do that. With Designer 2.0 with IDM 3.5 is what we've done with that is you can now configure with Designer all your forms. So I talked about business processes. Well, if you think about it, part of the business process has to do with approvals. Those are different types of information that you need. So when I request a cell phone, I need a form that says, I need request to a cell phone, and this is my ID, and this is why I need it. Well, those forms, we could write a lot of pre-canned forms, and we do have forms, but typically those are going to need to be customized. Pre-configured? Pre-configured forms. Okay, so the forms that are fairly standard, but your business process is going to be different than the standard, right? So you're going to have to map that to the way your users want to see it and the type of information that you want and the type of message. So Designer allows you to define those forms, and you don't have to be an engineer or a high-level consultant to do that. With Yeah, I, I noticed at BrainShare the GUI for that was really pretty and very easy to use. Absolutely. There's designers, and it utilizes a lot of the technology underneath like our abstraction layer in the user app, which allows you to map and filter fields. So if I say, for instance, okay, I need to create a form, and I want to auto-fill that form, so the first thing I want to do is ask for a site, and I can specify, oh, I need a drop-down box, and I'll choose a site. At Novell, I may choose a site of Novell. Well, and is what I may be doing is trying to request a specific office or a specific resource within a building. So I have a form that allows me to request that. So I say, oh, I'm in Provo. And immediately it comes down and says, oh, well, I know Provo. And so the next field will automatically fill for you and say, which building? And it will actually list the buildings for you. So it allows you to generate data and forms and dynamically create things that's intuitive to the end user. So you have form field. You also have the ability in Designer now to define all of your workflow processes or policies and those will map up like a workflow so when a request comes in it's going to go to administrator a and then it's going to provision down these applications and then it's going to go over to an approval to administrator d and you can actually watch that whole workflow process and you can design that and click and drag just as you did with connected systems so we've had a lot to designer to bring the entire provisioning experience from a designer standpoint from a management standpoint really to the high level f through designer. I imagine also it allows for reporting and that sort of a tool where you could actually follow the process through if, say, for example, we got a new uh, administrator here and, and it kicked off certain processes for their cell phone, for their laptop, for access to these resources, you could then also track where in the process that person is, basically, or the process, how far through the process it's completed, or how does that... 
help customers not just in knowing what processes to use, but in tracking and seeing the effectiveness of those processes. I think you've identified the core value prop of Novell and Novell's identity story, not just identity manager. It is so critical that you have the entire process tightly integrated. So there's a lot of vendors out there that will provide data or they'll provide technology where you can do workflow and they have other technology where you can store identity vault, but there's no connection between those systems. So when you set up your workflow processes and then what actually happens in the identity vault are completely disparate. With Novell, that's all integrated. That's all part of it. So yes, when I can actually track and audit through the events and through our logging exactly where the provisioning went, who did the provisioning, who did the authorization. We actually even added the ability to digitally sign the approvals. So you can digitally sign who the approver is and verify, and that's all audited as well. Some other added benefits talking about auditing and tracking, but also just general use case, is we've added team delegation and we've added proxy or team management and delegation proxy. So with workflow, it's not practical that everyone's going to be at work all the time. And maybe I need a cell phone tomorrow, not next week when my manager comes off of vacation, right? And so I can actually, as a manager, I can delegate those workflows to an individual. Or I can let my admin be a proxy to that for me to authorize those. But it's important because now I can allow the business process to continue, but through the system I can tell, yes, it was, and I'm the official approver, however... My proxy agent, my admin, was the one who clicked the button. So I can actually track down exactly what happened without interrupting business flow. So all of that is an important part of it. Just a quick question. So we've got designer. We've also got iManager. When would you use what? Yeah, so there's a lot of management tools out there, and we've talked about two of them, right? So iManager is our core management piece, and the focus of iManager is for a web experience, a web top from remote or local places where you want a help desk user or an administrator or someone who's going to be doing day-to-day tasks to be able to leverage the identity system. So you can go in and configure identity drivers and policies within Identity Manager. The concept is is that your architect, your consultant, your designer who implements the system, the implementer of the system, would use designer to implement the overall architect, make sure it flows and that things are clean. You would then have your day-to-day administrator who could go into iManager. They certainly could use Designer, but the the thought or the, the premise is that they would go into iManager because it may be cleaner, more efficient. They don't have to have it on their laptop. They can just jump onto the web, grab a web browser, and go grab the identity driver, and they can make configuration changes and policy changes. So iManager would be a typical place where you would add users or that you would configure those types of things. You would use Designer to implement or design your system and document your system. So there's a differentiator. Certainly there's cross-functionality. You can do the same tasks in either place for convenience, but the main focus really is around Designer's implementation. iManager is about day-to-day administration. So what is Novell doing to better enable like ISVs and partners to sell like Identity Manager? Yeah, so Identity Manager is pretty complex. Yeah, it sounds like it's a fair few pieces. I, identity Manager, you know, with DirectML, as I stated, it's been around a long time. We have a lot of drivers. We have a lot of connected systems. We get the question all the time that I need to 
connect up with um, you know an SAP HR system or I need to connect to this database which driver should I use which technology should I use should I use LDAP should I use ODBC what should the filters look like what are the policies what are the best practices the answer has been in the past well it depends what are you trying to accomplish and what are your parameters we are building uh, what we are calling the resource kit the resource kit is actually a Prepackaged solution of IDM. Uh, we will actually ship it on VMware and very soon on XN, which will allow you to the Zen product. I was going to say XEN, XN, yeah. XEN, yeah. Which will allow you to take a pre-canned virtualized image that has a designer project and it has many of the common use drivers already built in. And the important part is, is we've set up all of the configuration and the policies towards best practice, so you can literally as a new partner or reseller, take the VMware image and be able to bring it in and not only train yourself, but you could use that as a complete proof of concept. And then based on the policies and things that we are actually hardening and testing, these aren't sample policies. These are best practice policies. You could actually implement those policies into production. So you were saying that was coming out or that's that's going well, out? It's an iterative program. Okay, so we're on Milestone 3. We will continually update that every quarter. And so, again, uh, sorry, help me out. What's Milestone 3? Uh, a milestone simply says that we are releasing this thing every quarter. Okay, okay. It's not a new product. It's Identity Manager. It's just new policies. We're adding new drivers all of the time. We're adding new functionality. We define business processes in there and different use cases. We will have cookbooks that give you step-by-step instructions how to set up and install the directory. We also have storybooks in there, which tells you, okay, your business process is that you want to provision a user and you want their password to change every single night and you want to trigger this workflow process to accomplish these types of things. In the storybook, we not only tell you how to do it, we tell you why you should do it and what way to do it for best practice. So that's all packaged together. And, and again, the reason it's a milestone is because it's not really a product you sell. It's more of we're continually updating and giving you data and information and tools, such as the VMware image, that will allow you to demo, train, and even implement the systems. So that's a really powerful tool. Again, that will be enabled and you'll hear announcements, especially if you're a partner, consultant, reseller, very, very soon of how to enable that. We do envision eventually bringing that to our general customer base. In fact, a lot of it is already there. If you download Designer 2 today, you will see different configurations of the driver. For instance, you'll see two AD drivers. One of them will be AD driver, and the other one will say AD driver resource kit. Well, the AD driver resource kit in designer is actually our policies and stuff that we have written that again focuses on this prepackaged or best practice policies. So we are giving the policies and that kind of thing today to the general consumer. So a lot of people can take advantage of that. Some other things, of course, designer is there and free and available and anyone can download and access it. And the whole idea there is that you can give us feedback. Um, there's a link as you download Designer of how you can write bugs or give us enhancements and feedback, and we're continually looking at that. Designer is also written iteratively where we release continually, you know, every quarter, new updates, and we read that feedback and we update. So that tool will help you enhance your experience. We also have a project called Enforcer. 
Enforcer uses the driver technology, and it's also built into Eclipse, so that you can use a driver with or without the meta directory and actually connect to disparate systems and analyze the data. So you can look for normalization things. For instance, um, you before you write your Identity Vault um, policies, you want to be able to figure out what format you want your phone numbers in. Well, in the HR system, it has parentheses around the phone number. In your LDAP system, they use dashes. In the Identity Vault or in eDirectory, I have spaces, 800 space 423 space 1234. Well, I need to normalize that. I need to make all of them consistent within all the databases, or I have to write policy that handles the different configurations. When I bring it together, they all look and feel the same. So I can use Enforcer to reach out to the different systems and analyze the systems. So it'll come back, depending on how I configure it, and say, you have 500 instances where you're using parentheses, and it's in these data stores. And you have 300 instances where you're using dashes. And eventually, we're not there yet, but eventually you can say, you know what? I want you to apply this template and put parentheses around all the phone numbers in all of the systems. Or today you can say, fine, I know that when I'm connecting to this system, I need to handle it with parentheses. In this system, I need to use dashes. So Enforcer allows you to analyze your data and allows you to data scrub, if you will, so or define policy so you can set that up. So is Enforcer part of Designer or is that a separate application or how do you use that? Where do you get it? So Enforcer today, again, is in a, in a milestone release. So uh, right now, we're keeping it very isolated, and we're you know beta testing it, and we're getting data before we provide it to the public. But Enforcer is a tool that we're writing for the future and direction for for everyone to consume. Enforcer is based off of Eclipse. It will work right side by side with Designer. So when you download Designer and Enforcer, you will be able to, in the same Eclipse environment, see one tab or the other. The idea, and again, we're talking about some of the future and directions that we're heading here, that you will be able to take a Designer project and all of the filters and policies that you set up and apply that to Enforcer to actually go out and grab the data and analyze it before you actually turn everything on and set up your identity vault. So that's a tool that we're writing to help enable the system and help you to sell and, and deploy. We find that today when someone wants to deploy, say, the identity vault, it takes a lot of time to data scrub. They usually hire a consultant. It takes up to a month or so where they'll come in, analyze all the data, write a bunch of Perl scripts, write a bunch of LDAP scripts to go in and normalize the data. Enforce will automate all that for you so you don't have to do that. So it will really be able to let you deploy the system quicker, more efficient. Great. Now, speaking of things coming down the line here, what do you see in the future with IDM? You're going to see a lot more with governance, risk, compliance. So you're going to see tighter integration with Sentinel. You're going to see a lot more reporting capabilities, uh, pre-canned reports that will allow you to extract data from the system. You're going to see a rich roles management module where you'll be able to define roles and you'll be able to integrate that directly within the system. Another thing that's important that I didn't mention is with IDM 3.5, which is new with IDM 3.5, I've talked about workflows and I've talked about business processes. One of the things that we've added is the ability to reach out and talk to external web services. So you may have a web application out there that requires a workflow. It's outside of the identity system. It's, it's an application. So we could actually trigger a workflow that will hook into that web service. And when that web service needs a credential, 
for instance. We can have that tied directly into our workflow process and cleanly and efficiently go provision that credential and be able to pass that back to the, to the service. So integration with existing applications and interfaces and enterprise business processes is critical. You'll see a lot more of that. You'll see there's a term out there called Web 2.0 or Web Mashup. It's all about using common controls like JSON and AJAX controls, which allow you to take embedded functions, if you will, or services and place them in any type of infrastructure. So you'll see things like our password management module, which right now is tied directly into the user application, working as an independent control that you could put into any system, whether that's our own Novell systems like an access manager system, so you have password management functionality in there, or whether it's an external SAP system or or another system you could actually implement. So you'll see a lot of that moving forward in the future where we can truly integrate our identity technology. What platforms can we run this on? We can basically run this on pretty well anything, right? Linux, Windows, Nowhere. So so that's a loaded question because you say this, and I've talked about a lot of technology. Okay? <laughs> so if we're talking about the meta directory or the identity vault, yeah, it'll run on Windows, it'll run on Linux, Red Hat, and SUSE. It'll run on Solaris, it'll run on HPUX, it'll run on AIX, it'll run on all those systems. If you're talking about designer and enforcer, we're talking about a Windows and Linux platform. Windows and Linux, yeah. If you're talking about iManager, it'll run on all the platforms without exception at this point. If you're talking about the user application and the provisioning modules, those will run on Solaris, Windows, Linux, and NetWare. There are different frameworks, though. So the user application is an identity portal, if you will. It's not a full portal technology, but allows you, again, a user web top or user face, a customized identity-enabled face to your identity data. That right now is running on JBoss. Um, you will see in the very near future this fall where we'll be able to run that user application on other web frameworks such as WebSphere, WebLogic, and things like that. So if you're talking about those kind of platforms, we'll have that. And then, of course, uh, underneath the WebLogic or WebSphere, there are different types of containers, databases. And so we'll support several different types of databases as far as Oracle and MySQL. So when you ask this and what platform, it's kind of a loaded question. Yeah, I probably but, should have clarified yeah. it. I was thinking more of the back-end side of things because I thought we'd already touched a little bit on the front end. But thanks for wrapping that all up and putting it all together. Yeah. Well, thank you, Rick. It's been very informative. Thank you for your time, and thanks for joining us here in the studio today. Hey, no problems. See ya. Thanks to Randy and Caitlin for their overview of Identity Manager of 3.5 with Rick Kilpack. And that's it for this show. Novell Open Audio is brought to you by Novell Users International in conjunction with Novell Incorporated. Remember that most of our content is directed by you, our listening audience. So please send us requests and comments at novell.com slash openaudio or sending us email at openaudio at novell.com. Thanks a lot. That's it for this time. See you next time.